Well, we're going to be looking at that chapter from Isaiah that Felix read for us, and so I'd recommend you have that open with you. Uh, my topic for today, I want to talk about holiness. Uh, are you holy? Uh, now, I'm, I'm very aware that perhaps there are some who are listening who are almost entirely unaware, really, of what holiness is. Uh, you seem to have got on just fine without it. It sounds like a, a rather religious idea, and probably you feel you'll get on fine without it in the future. Well, I hope today's message will teach you that holiness in uh, the way the the Bible speaks of it is uh, not just some religious idea. It is of utmost importance. I hope you also get an idea of what holiness is, in fact, as well as our need of it. Others might already have an understanding of holiness. Uh, You think, uh, okay, yeah, I know that God asks us to be holy. Um. But you don't really give too much thought to holiness. You consider yourself a reasonably good person. You try and keep God's law. You try and do what he asks. Do you really need another message on holiness? I hope as you listen to the message that you'll be challenged to reassess your view of holiness. It's not just an extra addition for the ultra keen. It is vital to every one of us. We each need holiness. Or perhaps there are some who are listening who are acutely aware of their need of holiness. You know God's even New Testament commands to us to be holy in all you do. Be holy just as I am holy. And as you hear that command, you look at your own life and you feel helpless, hopeless. Because all you see is your own failures in the area of holiness. I hope today's message will be an encouragement to you as you are reminded of the true source of holiness. We're going to do three things. First, we're going to see what holiness is and the importance of it. Second, we're going to consider how holiness is a thing that each of us need, none of us have inherently within ourselves. We need it given. And thirdly, we're going to see where we can get this holiness. What is the source of holiness? So first, the importance of holiness. Isaiah starts out in this chapter with a vision that he has of God. And it's interesting to note, actually, that he doesn't, although he has this vision of God, he doesn't describe God himself. The Bible repeatedly tells us no one has ever seen God. There's no description here of God's hair color or the emotion in his eyes or the look on his face or or, or anything of that sort. And yet, although God himself isn't described, certainly you get a, a very strong sense of what God is like. How do we get that sense? Well, uh, look at what Isaiah tells us. Verse one, the first thing to note is that God, the Lord, is on his throne. He is high and exalted. His throne sets him up as the king. Uh, That's probably what we most commonly think about with a throne, but also sets him up as the judge, the one who is passing judgment on the people who come before him. Now, this judge that Isaiah sees is no petty, small claims court judge. Is also not just the uh, the judge or king of uh, of a very small place like Judah, a rather insignificant nation uh, in those days. This king, this judge, is high and exalted. The train of his robe fills the temple. Even today, in courtrooms, judges sit at an elevated position to give them a commanding authority over the room and over the proceedings of the courtroom. God doesn't just sit slightly elevated from others. 
He sits high and exalted. It's a fearsome position. Perhaps Isaiah even has to, to crane his neck to get a glimpse of this throne. And his train of, the, of his robe fills the temple. It's a sign of his majesty, his strength and his power. It just fills the whole place where he sits. And as he sits on his throne, verse 2, he's attended by seraphs. Seraphs are, uh, well, the word really only comes up in, in this passage, um, but, but it carries the idea of like a, an angelic being, a fiery angel. The burning ones, really, the word means. And these fearsome creatures, uh, no doubt fearsome even on their own, I imagine would look even more fearsome uh, positioned at the side of the throne of God. And even these seraphs, these burning fiery angels, can't bear to look at the throne on which God sits. They've each got six wings, and with two wings they cover their faces as a sign of respect and awe and perhaps even fear of the one who is on the throne. With two wings they cover their feet, a sign of humility and reverence. It's as though they're saying, our feet will not take us where we want to go. Our feet are reserved for your use. And then with two they fly, ready to do the will of God as he sends them. And as they fly and as they attend God on his throne, what is the word on their lips? Verse 3, they are calling to one another, holy. Holy, holy, holy. Holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. There's our word for today. If you're going to describe the Lord on his throne in one word, the word that the seraphs use is Holy. What is holiness then? In the Bible, the idea of holiness carries the idea of separation or distinctness. And so you get, for example, ideas of holy objects, objects that are only to be used for a certain task. You get holy places, places that are only to be used for the worship of God. And when we talk about God being holy, it carries this idea of God being separate or distinct or aside from others. He's separate from everything else in existence. Now, you might think, oh, well, that's because he is spirit and we are physical. But that's not how God is holy. For example, there are other spiritual beings. Probably these seraphs actually are spiritual beings. And yet God is still holy, separate, distinct from them. So how is God holy? How is he separate? Well, he's he's independent in the truest sense of the word. Now, you might feel independent to a certain extent, but, but ask yourself this. Where does your life come from? Your life did not come from yourself. You didn't decide to live. You were born. Your life is given you by your mother. That's where your body got its life from, the life of your mother. Well, then where did your mother get her life from? Well, she got her life from her mother and so on and so on. You could trace back all the way from the family tree. So where did life come from then? Adam and Eve? Well, no, even they didn't decide to exist. The the very start of the long line of of the chain of life starts with God. He's the one who was never born. He's the one who never began to exist. He is totally independent from others. In fact, he's independent, not just in terms of his life, but in terms of everything that he is and does. God is eternal. He's independent of 
time, for example. If God wants to do something, he doesn't have to wait 15 minutes for the right time to come up before he does it. Even if an action is in the future, God is so independent that he can just act and the action will happen at the right time. God is separate. He is fully independent in all that he is and all that he does. Now, I said at the beginning that that holiness is something that we need to have. Now, that sort of holiness doesn't sound like there's something we can have. How can we ever become independent like God is independent? But that's not quite the way the Bible speaks of our holiness. God's holiness has another aspect to it. It's a related aspect. You can see the relation in verse verse 3, actually. The angels are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. God might be separate, they're saying, holy, but he's not distant. He's still engaged with the creation that he has made. The whole earth, in fact, is full of his glory. And the other aspect to God's glory is his is, is a moral aspect. It relates to his goodness. Here's why. If God is totally separate and independent, if God only ever acts according to what he feels is right and, and what he decides is good, then, in fact, he becomes the definition of what is good. He can't be influenced or taught or instructed or, or coerced to do anything that he doesn't want to do. He always does what he feels is right. He always does what is right, actually. What is God like? The Bible tells us time and time again, page after page after page, the Bible is telling us that God is good. And he's good not just as in, oh, that's quite a good idea. He's good not just as in, mm, yeah, better than not so good, but not quite perfect. No, he's good as in he is the definition of what good is. Something is good if God says it's good. And equally, if God does something, it is good by virtue of him doing it. God's holiness includes this aspect of his absolute goodness. God is the unchanging standard of what is right and what is wrong. And the angels say the whole earth is full of his glory. They're saying that God's goodness can be seen at every turn within creation. It's not to say that every single thing that happens is good, but it's to say that in every action, in every moment, in every space, you can still see something of God's goodness, his holiness, his glory fills the world that he has made. Now, why is holiness Important. That's what we're trying to answer. Well, for this reason. Because if God is so unchangeably good, if God is so unmoved from his own standard of goodness, if he's so committed to his own definition of what is right and wrong, then unless your goodness matches his holiness, his holiness will destroy you. Because God is so committed to goodness, unless your goodness matches his, his goodness will destroy you. His holiness will wipe you out. 
It's interesting that Isaiah received this vision in the year that King Uzziah died. I wonder if you know how King Uzziah died. Interestingly, King Uzziah was a good king. He was obedient to God. He did what was right in God's eyes, the Bible tells us. But towards the end of his reign, he became proud of his obedience. And he decided to enter the holy place within the temple in order to offer incense. He wasn't supposed to do that. That was for the priests to do. And as he went into the holy place, God struck him down with leprosy. And he was evicted from the city. And he lived the rest of his life in loneliness and died of leprosy. He had a low view of God's holiness. And God's holiness destroyed him as a result. And what does Isaiah say here in this vision? Verse 5, he says, woe to me, I am ruined. More literally, he's saying, I'm basically dead. I'm a goner. I'm done for. Because here am I, standing in the presence of the Holy God. Holiness is important because without our own, without holiness, we expose ourselves to the judgment of God. We expose ourselves to his destructive power, which works to preserve all that is good and all that is right. Now, okay, you you might say, um, holiness is a question of goodness then, but aren't you basically a good person, you might say? You try and do what's right, you try and help others, you, you try and come to church, you try and do what God asks you to do. Isn't that enough goodness? For us to stand before God? Do we really need holiness? That's what we're going to ask ourselves now. Do we really need holiness? And in this point, I'm talking to genuine believers too. Because although if you are a Christian and if you have been saved from sin and forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ, then I'm sure that you would, you would never describe yourself as being basically good enough. But the same sorts of ideas can often creep into our thinking. It's just a little coveting, you might say to yourself. It's just a little bit of self-indulgence. It's just a bit of frustration letting itself out. Is it really a sin? Isn't it more just unwise or or weakness? Is it sin? Is it unholy, really? As we keep looking at the passage now, we're going to see that not one of us is holy. And if we're going to stand before the holy God, we need holiness to be given as a gift. First, consider Isaiah's response in verse 5. Isaiah was a prophet, remember? He spends his his whole day preaching God's word to the Israelites. He is, in a sense, the mouthpiece of God. If he's got anything to commend himself, it will be the words that he has said on behalf of God. And yet, what does he say? Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. Aside from all the good that he has used his lips for, He recognises what else has come out of his mouth. All the good that he has ever done cannot outweigh the sins that he has committed with his mouth. And what's more, he says, verse 5, I live among a people of unclean lips. He's referring to the other Israelites there. How can their unholiness affect Isaiah's measure of holiness, you might ask? Well, In living among them, Isaiah recognises that he has been content to let their sin go, perhaps unchallenged. It's not that their sin is Isaiah's responsibility. It's more that God's holiness, God's absolute standard of goodness, is not a passive holiness. 
God's goodness is not the kind of goodness that says, well, so long as I'm good, that's okay, and everybody else can do what they want. God's goodness is the sort of goodness that actively seeks out and pushes out all other evil. When Isaiah compares his own holiness to that of God, he he just sees how far short of the mark he falls. Now, if that's how Isaiah measures up, do you see how high God's standard of holiness is? And do you see where it is that you might measure up against it? This summer, universities have been downgrading the the entry bar uh, of uh, exam results uh, to get into university. Because they recognise the the difficult time that students have had in summer and the, the, the reduced number of hours of teaching. But don't you see that the difference between our goodness, our holiness and the holiness of God is not just a case of, oh, we better downgrade it a few, a few marks. Uh, the difference is one that we, we can't, we can't even get a glimpse of the fullness of God's glory and his goodness. We can't even grasp his holiness, let alone live it out in our own lives. We, we fall so far short of God's glory. Your Good behaviour at school, your respectability in the community, your warm heartedness, your generosity. It's just a little speck in the vast ocean of what is God's eternal and unchanging goodness. And to say that you can use your own intermittent occasional acts in order to prove yourself holy is futile. You're not comparing like for like. God is so far above us in terms of who he is and what he's like. Now, how can it be fixed? That's the that's the question. What does Isaiah have to do? Does he have to say sorry? Does he have to repent? Does he have to promise not to do certain things again? Does he have to perform some kind of ritual? The problem with all these things that, that he might be asked to do is that they would never deal with his past sin. Even if Isaiah was able to promise not to do a certain thing again, and even if he was able to live out that promise, what would it do with his past sin? What would it do with his guilt that has already uh, been, uh, that is already on him? How do we deal with our guilt? So often we deal with guilt by simply uh, ignoring it, letting time uh, push it away from us. The longer we live forgetting it, then the more likely it is to go away with reason. Or perhaps we try and deal with guilt by, by piling up a bigger stack of, of good deeds on top of it. We try and hide it or bury it beneath a mass of other good works. But it doesn't deal with the guilt. It doesn't take the guilt away. It's still there, just buried, just forgotten, just covered up. But God, who sees the end from the beginning, is not fooled by our attempts to cover up or hide our guilt. Isaiah's guilt needs to be taken away. And in verse 7, a seraph does that for him. He, he picks up a coal uh, and touches the live coal from the altar onto his lips. And incredibly, incredibly, Isaiah is made holy. Now, I know the text doesn't say that. The text doesn't say, oh, Isaiah was made holy. But it's a logical uh, implication. Because here is Isaiah the sinner standing before the holy, holy, holy God. 
and yet he is not consumed by God's holiness. And so this act that the seraph performs for him, taking his guilt away, must therefore be an act that makes Isaiah holy. Now, if Isaiah can be made holy, what about you? What about me? What about Israel? Can God make others holy? Thirdly, we're going to see the source of holiness. Let's have another think about how it was that Isaiah's guilt was removed. You see, when the seraph took that coal and touched it against his lips, it was a very symbolic action. The coal uh, with a a fire, the fire is uh, kind of a representation of God's holiness. His, um, His anger and opposition towards everything that is evil or sinful. God's holiness is a consuming force. It is destructive in that his holiness wipes out all that is all that stands against his goodness. And so the, the, the flaming coal is picked up and the coal is taken from the altar. Now, the altar in the temple, which notice where Isaiah is having this vision, the altar in the temple is the place where worshippers would bring an animal sacrifice. And the animal would be put into the fire of God's holiness and the animal would be given as a representative of the human being. Normally a a bull or a goat or a lamb or something like that. And the animal would go into the flames of God's holy judgment, taking the place of the worshipper. The animal faces the fire of God's judgment instead of the believer. Now I'm sure you'd agree that a bull or a goat or a lamb, can it is no adequate representative for a human being. It's not even a moral being. It can't even choose right or wrong. So how can it take the judgment of God for moral decisions, for what is right and wrong? It can't. And that's part of the whole point of the system. The, the animal sacrifices were designed to say, look, this system is not in itself sufficient. It's a picture. It's pointing you to a day when God will provide a sacrifice that is sufficient to take your place. When God will provide someone who can stand in your place and take the fire of God's holy judgment instead of you. Who is that sacrifice? Well, we'll get to that shortly. Let's just spend a little bit more time in the chapter. Once Isaiah's guilt is taken, God speaks to him and gives Isaiah a rather unusual task. He says uh, in verse 9, go, go and tell this people. God sends Isaiah to go and preach. But Isaiah's got to preach a message which nobody will listen to. Nobody's going to listen. In fact, it's even stranger than just preaching a message that nobody will listen to. He's got to preach a message that will cause people to stop listening. God says, make their hearts hard or calloused, make their ears dull, close up their eyes. Through Isaiah's message, people are going to be prevented from hearing and understanding. How does Isaiah do that? He doesn't do it, by the way, by preaching a really long, boring, disinteresting message, which I hope this message this morning is not. Uh, But that's not how he does it. Interestingly, in chapter 28, Isaiah records some of the mockery he gets from the people. They're saying, basically, Isaiah, your message is so simple. It's so plain and boring. It's just the stuff we've heard all the times over. Give us something new. Uh, Give us something that we can get our teeth into and think about and and mull over. 
uh, we don't just want this same old preaching, the same old story of God's, uh, uh, God's judgment and the repentance that is required. Isaiah didn't make his message difficult to understand. He made it simple. And because it was so simple and plain, and because he so obviously told the people of their need to repent, then nobody listened. Kids, have you ever been in that situation where you've got hold of a door on one side and you're trying to hold the door closed? And then there's somebody on the other side and they're pulling it and they're trying to open. And you're pulling one way and they're pulling the other and all of a sudden you let go. And the person on the other side falls over, don't they? Well, who was it that made them fall over? Was it you for letting go? Or was it them for pulling? Well, it's difficult to say precisely who it was uh, that made them fall over. But if you hadn't let go they wouldn't have fallen over. You know, it's a bit like what is going on here. For decades, God had sent prophets to Israel, warning them of the judgment that was coming upon them, warning them of their sin and telling them to repent and change and turn back to God. And in sending Isaiah, it was though God was giving them up to their own choice. Fine, have it your way, he's saying. Keep preaching, Isaiah. Keep preaching until they totally reject the message I send them. Keep preaching until they totally reject every instruction, every word, every message. And when they do, then I will bring upon them the judgment that I have been promising all along. Verse uh, 11 onwards, God is saying, look, Assyria, they're going to come. They're going to invade Israel and they're going to take your people away. Babylon, they're going to come and they're going to invade Judah and they're going to take your people away. Your cities will lie ruined and without inhabitant. Your houses are going to be deserted. The fields are going to be ruined and ravaged. The promised land that God's people had lived in for so many centuries, the land flowing with milk and honey will be empty and forgotten because the people were unfaithful. Now, if... If Israel and Judah are like a tree, or if they're like a vine, remember the picture from last week, then God is saying, I'm gonna, I'm gonna cut them down, verse 13. I'm gonna cut them down and down and down until there is not just a trunk, not just a few branches, until there is only a stump left in the ground. I'm gonna cut them down until there's nothing left. Until everything looks hopeless. Until for anyone looking from the outside, it looks like it is all gone. And yet, out of that stump, verse 13, the very last line, out of that stump, the holy seed will grow up. New life will spring up out of that stump after I have cut it down. And the stump will be like the holy seed from which the the tree grows up into life once again. If Judah and Israel are like the tree who is cut down, the question is, who is going to be like that stump that then grows up? Who is the holy seed? Is it the the faithful remnant, they're often called? The few faithful believers, people like Isaiah, who although the whole nation was turning against God, there were one or two people who still were faithful to God. There were certainly some people all the way through Israel's history, even up until the time of Jesus. You get people like Mary and Joseph, actually. They would have been part of that faithful remnant. 
People like Zechariah and Elizabeth, people like Anna and Simeon, people who remained faithful to God, even though the world, uh, the nation around them had turned against God and made his law into a, a means for self-righteousness. Yet, even Mary and Joseph, even Zechariah and Elizabeth, even Anna and Simeon, even people like Ezra and Nehemiah, even those members of the faithful remnant, are they... Are they the holy seed? Especially in this chapter. Yes, we know the Bible does talk about God's people as being holy. But in this chapter, we've seen how how even Isaiah has recognized he is not the holy one. Are these faithful believers really all that is meant by this holy seed? Or is there something more? You see, out of that faithful remnant, from Mary's body, came one who was holy. Mary gave birth to Jesus. And as Jesus grew up, it became evident to all that Jesus was living a life of pure, true holiness. Jesus lived a life of goodness that didn't just match our expectation of goodness, it matched God's standard of goodness. He was good in all that he said and all that he did. And not only was he good, but whenever he came face to face with what was evil, he drove it out. And he spoke against the Jews. And he said to them, you are those who've got the word of God staring you in the face, and yet you continue to reject it. You are the fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah. You are the people who've got the word of God playing in front of them, and yet you continue to reject it. And so strong was their rejection of God's word that the Jews killed him. The Jews put Jesus to death. And as they did, they said this. It's better that one man should die for the nation rather than the whole nation perish. What they meant was, we should get rid of this one man because we don't want everybody to suffer by believing this message that he's bringing. What God caused their words to mean afterwards was this. Jesus is going to suffer. One man is going to suffer on behalf of the nation so that the whole nation need not perish. And that's exactly what happened. When Jesus died on the cross, Jesus died as a representative for his people. He became the fulfillment of all those bulls and goats and lambs that were offered in sacrifice on the altar, in the fire, in the temple. And the fire of God's holy judgment fell in full force. But this time, not upon an animal, Not upon a weak representation, but upon the one who can perfectly represent us. The one who is a man, just like us. The one who calls himself our brother. He died in our place. He went through the fire and the flames. He suffered God's judgment so that we don't have to. The fire didn't land on us. It landed on Jesus, the holy seed. And because of Jesus... Our guilt is atoned for. Our guilt is atoned for. All our past sins. You know those things that you regret doing when you were much younger? Uh, Those those more foolish years of your life that you've tried to bury and ignore and, 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 uh, and, and hide under a mountain of other good works that you've been doing since? All that guilt can be atoned for, totally taken away, because Jesus will suffer on your behalf. 
All of your unholiness was taken by him on the cross. And his divine holiness is given to us as a gift. We become like branches grafted into him, the, the stump, the trunk that is uh, that is grown up. So we share his life. We, we feed on his sap, as it were. Look, if you're a believer struggling with sin, if you are yet again demoralized at your own repeated failure in obeying God, then be reminded of this. Jesus doesn't make us holy by giving us a to-do list. Jesus doesn't make us holy by causing us to promise not to do certain things in the future. Jesus makes us holy by taking the punishment for our sin and granting us the fullness of his own perfect holiness. And because of what he has done for us, our status as holy, our status as saints, the holy ones, is unchanging. It is secure. Yes, we can grow in in holiness, practically speaking. We can change our actions of life to become more like uh, the life of Jesus. But our status before God remains ever the same. Because it doesn't rest in what we've done. It rests in Jesus being the sacrifice that takes away our guilt. Guilt for sins past, guilt for sins present, guilt for sins which we will likely commit in the future. All of it laid upon Christ Jesus. If you're not a believer, then perhaps, I hope, like Isaiah, you've seen something of the holiness of God today. And my prayer is that you have been convicted of your own lack of holiness. Just how far short even the best of your goodness comes when it is measured up against God's standard. If you see that thing, then won't you acknowledge your own failure? Won't you confess to God your sin? And won't you put your trust in Jesus so that you too can share in the forgiveness that is offered when our guilt is atoned for, taken away, removed, by Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf.